Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. Everything we see, everything we do, every choice we make is controlled by our brain. And trying to change our behavior without trying to change our brain is such a struggle. It's really hard to change. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Today on The Less Stress Life, I have Barbara Hewson, previously known as Barbara Stanny, who's a leading authority on women, wealth, and power. As a best-selling author, financial therapist, teacher, and wealth coach, she's helped millions take charge of their finances and their lives. Her background in business, her years as a journalist, her master's degree in counseling psychology, extensive research, and personal experience with money give her a unique perspective and make her the foremost expert on empowering women to live up to their financial and personal potential. She's the author of seven books. Her newest, Rewire for Health, was published in 2021. And I learned about Barbara on another podcast that a friend sent me, loved the interview, read the book. And I want you to know this episode is for everyone. And I told her this before I hit record that so much of what she says about wealth, 100% translates into health. So we will jump all into that. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me, Krishna. Yeah. So I wanted to preface this because how we grow up is such a big part of our money mindset. I remember telling a coach one time that I didn't really care about money. And he said, you know, I don't think that that is going to serve you the way you just described that. So I want you to go out and do some money mindset work. And I grew up with parents telling me that I didn't need to know about this or that it wasn't a big deal. And you kind of grew up maybe with a little bit of a similar background. Will you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and that money story to how it kind of carried you into your early life? Yeah, I grew up in a wealthy family. My father was the R of H&R Block. And the only advice he ever, ever gave me about money was don't worry. Just like yours, Kristen. Well, I don't know what yours said, don't worry. But I love that advice. I didn't understand money. I just wanted to spend it. And 
under those words, don't worry, was the unspoken assumption there'll always be a man to take care of you, which was great because there was always a man. First, there was my father, and then I married a man who was a stockbroker. So he was perfect, right? Well, I found out very early in our marriage that he was a compulsive gambler. And over the course of our marriage, I stayed with him for 15 years. Every year, I'd find out many times during the year, he was losing my money, my inheritance. And here's the insane part. I continued to let him manage the money for 15 years because that's how terrified I was and intimidated by anything financial. Finally, after 15 years, we got a divorce and I decided I do not want to deal with money. Money's not my thing. Well, I have this theory now. If you don't deal with your money, your money will deal with you. And your coach was so right to give you that advice. And what happened to me is that I got tax bills for way over a million dollars, almost two million. My ex had left the country. I did not have anywhere close to a million dollars and my father wouldn't lend me the money. And that's when I knew I had to get smart. I had to get smart. So I did what you're, all the things you're supposed to do. I read the books, I went to classes and my eyes would glaze over, my brain would fog up and I just felt terminally stupid. But I had three girls and I was not going to raise them on the street. And I believe, I didn't know how I was going to do it. Honestly, I did not know how I was going to get smart and how I was going to figure this stuff out. But I really believe when you make a commitment, the down to your toes, no backdoor commitment, the universe revolves to help you reach your goal. And I was a journalist working for the San Francisco Business Times. And I was hired to interview and for a writing project to interview women who were smart with money. And those interviews changed my life. I not only became smart with money, but I wrote my first book, Prince Charming Isn't Coming, How Women Get Smart About Money. And suddenly I had this whole new career traveling all over the country doing financial education for women. But I couldn't make money. No matter what I did, I could not make money. And you can ask my children. I was gone all the time. So I started interviewing women who made lots of money. And that became my second book, Secrets of Six-Figure Women. And I started making six figures three times more than I ever made before I even finished writing the book. And now, seven books later, here I am talking to you, Krista, as a financial expert. I mean, who could have predicted that? It's such a fun story. I adore it. And you brought up, you said, if you don't deal with your money, it'll deal with you. But I find that if we think hard enough, or if you've been fortunate enough to not to have that experience, I'm sure we've all had an experience, whether it's been pointed out or not. I've had some, as my friend calls them, real rich lessons <laughs> this year. But one of the, essentially the coaches that I brought into my life said, if you don't deal with this essential fraud issue, then you'll just keep attracting those into your life. And so yeah, yeah, it was that for me, it was like uh, someone was fraudulent in my life. And she said, if you don't deal with that, you'll just keep attracting those problems. If you don't deal with a problem, it's just going to come back and keep trying to teach you the lesson somewhere else, right? Like the more you try to shove it away. And so that's what I thought of when you said, when you don't deal with something, it'll deal with you. It is so too, because problems are here to help us grow. There's, you know, the Zen saying the obstacle is the path. So wherever Uh, the problem is, that's where you need to go to become your best self. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you when that problem struck and those tax bills came and I didn't understand money, 
it seemed like the end of the world to me. It didn't seem like the beginning of a whole new life, which is what it became. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's a very dark place when you're in the middle of like a money can be a very ugly topic when there's a lot of scarcity around it. Right. And I'd love to know, I mean, you are very concise with that story. I know you've probably told it several times and it's a beautiful story because there's a happy ending, but I mean, it was an ugly thing. And so, but the main, yeah. What, how did you handle it? It was more painful than anything. It was more painful just to see. I just felt so incompetent and so, I don't know, just illiterate. I just felt ignorant, but the fact that I addressed it, and this is what I see happening all the time, when people really say, I'm taking charge, no matter how overwhelming it seems, you become different, you change, and it is a miraculous process. And I do want to hear about how you decided to change. I think there was a story where one of the other pieces is that someone, it was a course in miracles, or there was some kind of personal development journey. Obviously, the whole thing's a personal development journey, but there were some catalysts along the way, in addition to your career. Will you tell us how that kind of came into play? Oh, there were many catalysts, <laughs> many catalysts. I have come to believe, for me and so many of the people I work with, that Financial success is not just a practical process, but it is a healing journey. It is a spiritual practice. It is for women a rite of passage into our power. And that's what I realized it was. It wasn't about the money. It was about me owning my power. And when I wrote my first book, Prince Charming Isn't Coming, and I was interviewing all these women who were smart with money. I made such an interesting observation. I noticed that their success began when they started taking back their power. And I remember asking a psychologist in doing my research who specialized in financial issues. And I said to her, why are women so afraid of their power? And she said something that really gave me full body chills. She said, because powerful women have been burned at the stake. And I believe that it is part of our collective unconsciousness, our collective consciousness or unconsciousness, that we women are terrified of taking our power back because for generations we have suffered dire consequences, have been severely punished for that. It was like a something handed down to us almost. It was something that happened to us. Mm-hmm. It was something that happened. The patriarchy has been very meticulous about working to eradicate women's sense of autonomy, sovereignty, and power. But I think what's happening is women are waking up and really starting to take it back. And I think part of the problem is we don't understand power from a feminine perspective. The patriarchy defines power as power over, but not us. My definition of a powerful woman is someone who knows who she is, who knows what she wants and expresses that in the world unapologetically. So in other words, our fear of power is our fear of becoming all that we can be. And it's not the money. It's who we have to become, to become a container that can attract, that can maintain, and that can grow our wealth. Uh, This reminds me I wanted to share, I recently had an interesting interaction. I was in a meeting with a my financial advisor, who's a man, and this tax strategist, who is a man. And it was the most awkward meeting I have been in in a very long time to the point where I 
made some new decisions after that. I had all these men in these financial areas of my life. And it was like they were having a chest bumping contest in the meeting. And I've never used, I've never had to use this term, but I was feeling very mansplained too. I thought this is so bizarre and awkward and unusual. And I kind of came away from that with a revelation that all of these financial people in my life are men and I am a woman and I want some women in my corner, but it's easier to find the men in the corner than the women, right? For this reason, maybe that you're, that was my experience that, oh, I fell into looking to, maybe it was my own issues where, oh, I fell into working with men before I fell into working with women, but it was a good discovery to stop and say, I do not like this. (laughs) There's no feminine energy here working in my favor. So did you find somebody else? Yes. I uh, found women. I got rid of some of the men and brought in some women and everything. Like you said, you know, the obstacle is the path. It's like, oh, I really don't like this at all. It's very uncomfortable. It's very stressful, which is in direct, direct dissonance of my core values. And so I excused myself from those relationships and looked for some feminine perspective. But I love the way you described this. The power from a feminine perspective is knowing what you want and expressing who you are and what you want, but not just that, not just knowing, but expressing that in the world unapologetically. We tend to silence ourselves and we tend to water ourselves down so we don't make waves. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're here to do. We are here to make, to really cast long shadows. We are here to make an impact. That has become more of a, the next generation has really looked for purpose and you're speaking to so much purpose in money. I think that happens with money. It becomes such a, I don't know what words, you, you know, essentially very tactical, black and white. And it's not black and white. In fact, you talk a lot about money not really having to do with money at all, but mostly emotions. So you may have covered that a little bit overall. And I don't know where my question is about that, but in general, Money is more about emotions than anything else, as you may feel like you've already gone over. Well, let me just put it this way. What I have discovered over the 30, almost 30 years I've been doing this, is really financial success is a four-pronged process. It is the outer work of wealth, which is the practical, and that's what most the male financial industry focuses on. But if you have a hard time getting it, which I did, and which most of my clients do, it's important to look at the inner work of wealth, which is the psychological, which is the emotional, and the looking at your attitudes, beliefs, and early decisions you made about yourself and money. But there's also what I call the higher work of wealth, and that's the spiritual. Because I believe we were all here, all here, put on this planet for a purpose. And you can't possibly pursue your purpose and playful out if you're struggling to make ends meet and drowning in debt. And also, we women, once we've reached financial stability, we're not really motivated by money. We, we may want money, but what really motivates us is the opportunity to help others. Mm. And that's our motivation. And the fourth uh, prong of this financial success is what I call the deeper work of wealth. And that's my latest research, is how the mind and the brain work together. And when you understand that, you can quickly and efficiently shift your behaviors to wealth building behaviors. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more that we're motivated by the opportunity to help others after we've kind of gotten what we need. On You brought up that the inner work has to do with these early decisions. And I'd love to hear about how you feel about 
raising children as a parent in money. What are some of the things that we're doing as a parent? I know in your experience, you were told, don't worry. And in my experience, my parents said, you don't need to worry about that. Like that's not for you to be involved in right now. So I just took that as a, I'm not going to learn anything about it type thing. What advice would you give to parents? And especially as someone who had some faced some very challenging things as a single mother with three girls, what are some of the mistakes that parents make? And what is your advice to parents for raising kids? Let me tell you what I did. I don't know that I have across the board advice, but I think it's really important. One of the things that I did is when I really started my journey to get smart about money, I shared everything with my kids. One was just a baby. She was too young, but my two oldest, I really talked about it in ways that were not scary for them. You know, I kept reassuring them, but we talked about money. I even took them with me to meet with financial planners. And I remember my youngest daughter, I don't know, she's maybe nine years old. She fell asleep. But I swear, some of it went in. It went in their subconscious because they are all really good about money. And the other thing, I think it's important to talk about money, but it's not the words you use, it's the role modeling. And one of the things that inspired me because I hated this whole subject called money. It terrified me. It intimidated me. It just seemed overwhelming. But I did not want to be this kind of role model for my kids. And so my kids were the ones that inspired me to get smart, to get my act together. And so it's important to talk about it. It's important to model the healthy behaviors. And it's important to start them off like I did my kids with allowances. And one of the things I did that I didn't make this up but I read about it is I gave my kids each three jars and we labeled them. What did we label them? One was for saving, one was for spending, and one was for giving. And so they took their allowance and they divided it into three parts. Part they put into, they could spend for themselves, part they saved, and part for giving. And it was really good. It really taught my kids the value of saving and the value of philanthropy. Even when my youngest, <laughs> I don't know, she was just this little thing. When she took her little jar with filled with pennies and nickels and dimes to the, what, what do they call the, where they adopt pets? The uh, Humane Society. Humane Society. Mm-hmm. I, I just could feel her heart bursting with pride handing those people her money. And they were so excited to have it. Yeah. Kids have the, it's like you are allowing them to expand on that very natural, sweet inclination that they have and kind of let them lean into it and then build that skill. The best thing I ever did was have my kids create, essentially make their own money and spend their own. (laughs) It is such a stress reliever for me rather than going to a store and having them ask for things like you have your own money. You can spend it on what you like. It is my favorite thing. Exactly. So you talk about women being under earners. Will you define what an under earner is and why women are under earners? An under earner has nothing to do with the amount you make. An under earner is anyone who needs or desires to earn more, but for whatever reason, cannot. It's like, I'd love to make more money, but if you've ever said that, chances are you're an under earner. And an under earner has nothing to do with how much you make. You can make six figures and still be an under earner. And here's the thing, you can earn much less and not be an under earner. I have three daughters. One's an organic farmer, one owns a movie theater, and one's a stay-at-home mom. None of them are high earners, but they are not earners. They make enough to meet their needs, and they're doing what they love that feeds their soul. Under earning is never a conscious choice. 
it never feeds your soul. It is always a condition of deprivation and not just of money, but of time, of joy, of choices, of most of all, self-esteem. So I think about that brings up all of those. Like I think anytime money is a problem, it's around scarcity overall. So you did talk about this four pieces of framework of wealth, but you also talk about three steps for wealth, well-being, and anything else you need. And I don't think we've covered that. So creating wealth is very simple. It's kind of like dieting. Like we all know how to lose weight. You eat less and you exercise more, right? Simple. But there's a billion dollar industry out there to help you lose weight. It's the same with wealth building. Only three things you need to do. You spend less, you save more, and you invest wisely. That's it. But those three, there's a whole industry out there to help you do that. There is a whole industry out there to help you do that. And it does make people kind of glaze over a little bit when you think about investing. I know, and it's not that hard. I glazed over all the time. I glazed over until I was in my late 40s. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story of my glazing over. I couldn't get it. I have my master's degree in counseling psychology. I'm smart. I built a business. I couldn't get it. And I went to a therapist. And I remember sitting in a chair and I remember saying to him, oh my God, I want to get smart about money. I really do. You've got to help me. I want to get smart about money so bad. And he looked me in the eye and he said to me, no, you don't. And it was like someone took the air out of my defenses. I couldn't argue. That was the first time I realized there was a part of me that didn't want to get smart, that didn't want to manage money. I was terrified. I had no idea, but I realized talking to him, I was terrified that if I tried to manage my money, I'd lose everything. Better to let my husband do that. I was terrified that my parents would be mad at me. And I really was scared that a man wouldn't love me if I was financially successful. And it was only when with my therapist that we started exploring those beliefs that it was like the veils lifted and I could see and I could understand financial literature and my statements that once looked like Swahili to me. So I think the inner work and the outer work really go hand in hand. So you just kind of shared that your therapist unveiled this inner realization that you had not like really processed yet, which was that you didn't really want to know because of these core beliefs that you had. Yes, that's right. It was shocking to me, but it didn't take long once I got to those beliefs to dispense with them. And how did you identify those beliefs? Because you were easy to describe them there. Just exactly the same way. Our beliefs are right there. They may be below our consciousness, but they're right there waiting to come up. And when he said, no, you don't, you don't want to, suddenly that truth came to light. That truth that I'd been denying that I was too scared. I'd been denying it. Once I stopped denying it in that moment, he said, tell me why you don't want to. And it just came out. Mm. What if I blow it? What if my parents don't talk to me? What if man won't love? It just came out and it's right there. It was all right there. And then he said, no wonder you avoid money. It's an act of self-protection. Mm. And I believe, I believe that all self-sabotaging behaviors, like my avoidance, financial avoidance is such a self-sabotaging behavior, but all it is, is an act of self-protection. Mm. And once you understand why you're protecting, what you're protecting, what happens is that fear center in your brain quiets down and the thinking part of your brain goes 
back online and you can start seeing things differently. Mm, I love it. Self-protection, all self-sabotaging behavior is self-protection. I couldn't agree more. That's really as primitive as our brain really is. It's like just some really convoluted story we've told ourselves in an effort to self-protect. So we're not hurt. So that was kind of the first step in you rewiring, but you have a whole book on rewiring for financial success. So what were the steps that came after that, after you had the essentially the awareness or the realization? The book is called Rewire for Wealth. Rewire for Wealth. But it could be called Rewire for Health or Rewire for Fun or Rewire for Great Sex. It could be Rewire for Anything because... Everything, our behavior, everything we see, everything we do, every choice we make is controlled by our brain. And trying to change our behavior without trying to change our brain is such a struggle. It's really hard. It's really hard to change. As I said earlier, when you understand that the brain controls our behavior, but our brain, that organ in our head, is sculpted, is shaped by our mind. And our mind is that non-physical entity in our consciousness that is the source of our thoughts and our feelings. And it's the thoughts we think, it's the feeling we have over and over again that goes to those brain cells and they start talking to each other and they keep talking and keep saying the same thoughts and it builds these neural pathways and these neural pathways grow deeper and these neural pathways are what determine our behavior. And trying to go against a deeply embedded neural pathway is like going against gravity. I think one of the reasons that this is interesting for me, and it's easy for me to transpose wealth and health, is because this is neuroplasticity is a topic that I talk about in health all of the time. So in your work, would you say when you're working with clients, neuroplasticity or working on reprogramming neural pathways is a huge piece of it? It It came about six years ago, about six years ago, just the strangest thing happened. I started losing interest in my work. Mm. I just started becoming like I didn't want to do this work, which this is like, what? Shocking to me. This was more than a job. This was my ministry. This is my mission. This is my purpose. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I felt like something was missing. Something was missing. And I couldn't figure out what it was. So I did something really smart. I surrendered. I just gave in. I said, okay, God, if you want me to see what's missing, show me. I don't know what to do. And so I kind of started, kind of stepped back and stopped taking on new clients, stopped speaking, stopped doing all these things. And I just gave myself time. Mm -hmm. And one day I was on my email and this article on neuroscience came in my inbox. I had no idea what neuroscience was. I knew it was a study of the brain, but beyond that, and I started reading it and I thought, oh my God, I swear I bet my brain lit up like a Christmas tree because that I knew was the missing piece. So it hadn't always been part, but I knew. So I started studying neuroscience and started integrating into my work. And it took about four years to really develop a strategy, a formula for reprogramming, rewiring our brain to do it simply and efficiently. And so I can talk more about that if you'd like. I'd love for you to talk more about that. That's the perfect segue. Okay. (laughs) So... Essentially, I came up after much experimentation and work and trial and error with three steps, simple, simple steps to rewire your brain. They are incredibly, remarkably simple, but massively difficult in the beginning. The first couple of weeks, it really requires vigilance. 
So let me tell you the three steps quickly, and then I'll explain in a little more detail. Perfect. The three steps are recognize, reframe, respond differently. Recognize, reframe, respond differently. So here's what you do, because honestly, we create our world by the choices we make. And the choices we make are determined by the thoughts we think. When you want to change your life or anything, you simply shift your thinking. So let's say money's a problem and you find yourself thinking, there's just never enough. There's never enough. Or I'm not enough. But you find yourself thinking it. So you, what you do in you first recognize the thought that's causing your problem or that is accompanying your problem. You capture the thought. There's never enough. And I want you to recognize it in a certain way. You recognize it with curiosity and you distance yourself from the thought because thoughts are not true. Thoughts are just statements that are repeated over and over again that it becomes so embedded in the brain that they feel like truth, but they aren't. So you recognize it hmm, with curiosity. Isn't that interesting? I'm having a thought about not I am there is not enough or I am not enough. I'm having a thought about there not being enough or I'm having a thought about I'm not enough because what that does is a distancing and that distancing, it seems it's very powerful. I learned with myself and I learned with my clients without doing this first step, the other steps aren't as effective. So you distance, hmm, isn't that interesting? I'm having a thought about. And the second step is you reframe it. You ask yourself, how can I see this differently? And you come up with an affirmation or short statement that you can replace that negative, unhealthy, maladaptive thought with. And you won't believe it. You will absolutely think it's BS. It is not true. That doesn't matter because you didn't believe those first, those original thoughts either. So instead of I'm not enough, you can say, oh, there's plenty. Now, you don't believe it. Of course, you don't. Believe it, but you keep saying it over and over and over. There's plenty. There's more than enough. I have enough. You keep saying it. And it's what happens. Something really magical happens that you stop feeding the neural pathway that says there's not enough. And it starts shrinking while you feed the pathway that says, oh, there's more than enough. And it starts building. So you recognize the thought with curiosity. You reframe it with a positive statement that you say over and over again. And then you respond differently than you normally would as if that reframe, as if that positive statement was true. Whereas normally, for example, when I was trying to understand money, I would just stop. I would just forget it. Then I would, instead, I would force myself to read a paragraph more than I understood. If I'm not enough, is I want to change to there's plenty, I would do things like, oh, maybe if I saved $50 a month, I could save up and there would be more than enough. So you start engaging in behaviors that are different than you normally would. And your brain will say, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't listen. So you you absolutely recognize with curiosity, reframe with a positive statement and respond differently than you normally would. And you will be amazed. You will be absolutely freaking amazed. You do that really, really vigilantly. Your life will change in a very short time, a matter of weeks and months. I uh, like want to give that whole concept a big hug and embrace it. I love it so much. And I love that it's easy to remember. 
recognize, reframe, and respond differently. And I want to ask about another R. What about your clients that have resistance to that? Or how have you navigated clients that are a little bit resistant? Because that happens too. And those are the hardest people. And I mean, for me, that's kind of the stopgate. And I'm like, how do I help you? Okay, <laughs> you let me tell see you, that. every client has resistance. Because resistance is simply a psychological term for, I don't want to do this. Because our brain hates to change. It doesn't want to change. Our brain wants to try it and true because our brain has only one purpose. Since our ancient, ancient ancestors, our brain developed for one purpose only, our survival and to keep us safe. So every time we go to do something new, which means going outside of our comfort zone, it doesn't feel safe. So we go into resistance. And this is really important. It's a wonderful concept. I actually think resistance is a good sign. When my clients go into, when I go into resistance, hell, I go into resistance all the time. And I always think, oh, that's good. Because I wouldn't go into resistance if I wasn't about to leave my comfort zone. And success can only be found outside your comfort zone. So success, so resistance basically is really means a internal conflict. And what that means, all resistance is the result of an internal conflict. Part of you wants to move ahead and part of you doesn't. And this is really valuable. And so what you need to do, what I do with me and what I do with my clients is get to know that part that doesn't want to, get to know what it's afraid of, what it's payoff or staying where it is, and start having those two parts get on the same page, how they can help each other, how they can work together. And that's a whole process. You can do through the voice dialogue, through kind of dialoguing between the two parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of times when you just speak things out loud, sometimes it solves them, right? We don't realize all that internal chaos and conflict. Sometimes we're yeah. wrapping around on the inside. We don't. And there's always, whenever there's resistance, there is internal conflict. It's just that simple. And you just say, what part of me doesn't want to move forward and what part does? And that's the conversation. So, so far we've covered your history and kind of how trying to put our head in the sand around finances ultimately means that we're going to have problems with it. Sometimes if you don't deal with your money, it will deal with you. We've talked about this framework about money, the outer work of wealth and the inner work of wealth, psychology, emotion, beliefs, early decisions. We talked about deeper work. We talked about parents, role modeling. We talked about under earners. We talked about rewiring for health, which was recognizing, reframing, and responding differently. Is there anything you want to add to that? Because my other question, our last question is, what's next for you? You said you're kind of delving into the consciousness piece of financial, the brain and brain and emotions. Oh, I'm more than delving into it. I've kind of delved. I've kind of delved. (laughs) I know that's very exciting. Well, what, what I'm doing now is the other thing as a part of this neuroscience research I discovered is that women especially learn best on any topic, but especially money, but on any type, they learn best when they're in groups of other women, Mm. that there's something about being supported, being held accountable, seeing other people's progress, knowing you're not alone, hearing people say the same things you've been feeling, but you've never heard other people say before. Something about that affects a, a part of a woman's brain that allows them to learn quicker and better. So I've had it for about four or five years now, but I'm growing it, is a online community called the Wealth Connection. And it's been a dream of mine to have a safe place where women can come together to talk about money. And we do not talk about money like men talk about money. Hmm. 
we talk about the practical for sure, but we also talk about the emotional, we talk about the spiritual, and we just lift each other up. And we also have guest experts come and talk about money, and we have a book club, and we have masterclass, and we just have all kinds of things. So that's what's exciting for me, is seeing the rapid progress that occurs in groups you just don't get on your own. That is so fun to hear because I've spent the last year trying to cultivate and successfully now creating like essentially a group experience in addition to one-on-one. And I would agree with you. There's something about it. People love to come and learn from each other and realize that they're not alone. So hearing you reiterate that or share that that's what you found is really powerful is wonderful. And I will say that I have been in a handful of groups and I hadn't thought about it until you just said that there are not great. You have to find a community that you can talk safely about money to. And there's so frequently there's women, they don't have anyone to talk to about it. And so I'm glad that you are providing that space for them. Barbara, where can people find you online? I think the best place is my website, which is barbara-husson.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And I didn't share this, but when you said I became disinterested in work, we have those kinds of conversations with my colleagues as well. It's like there's a boredom piece where it's like, I must find a new challenge (laughs) sometimes. And you don't struggle to find a new challenge. It sounds like there's always another book or always a new project. And thank you. Oh, but there's always the gap before the new. There's always that place where something wants... It's like you go into this gestation and you don't know what's happening, and Mm -hmm. there's all this stuff going on inside, but you don't know that. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of bursts through the ground, like a a little petal, and it grows. You know, someone said once that all the best things come out of, I I don't know if this is the exact term, but I'm going to use this term, like a good discontent or a happy discontent. I don't know if that was exactly what it was, but he said, if we wouldn't have light bulbs, if we weren't happily discontent, you know, if we weren't like, well, this is okay, but I would be cool if I could see after 7 p.m. at night in the winter. I think it just doesn't come from happy discontent. I think it comes from miserable discontent. Absolutely. Yes. Change. We're all, I'm always intrigued by what brings people to action. And the concept Mm -hmm. or the thing that comes up a lot is either inspiration or desperation, but it's usually desperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Barbara-Husson.com. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing, for being a light on finance for women. Thank you. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.